welcome to Nakla Radio. I'm your host, Helen Hazelwood Isaac. So the winter issue of the Nakla Report is up online, and physical copies will soon be in the mail. This issue is entitled Fossil Fuels and Toxic Landscapes, and in it, Nakla contributors take a look at how extractivist policies have played out across the region, how activists and workers have imagined and advocated for alternative structures, and how racialized inequality and fossil fuel landscapes are intimately linked. So today, I'm very pleased to be joined by Jonathan DeVore, who wrote this issue's feature essay, Um, and if you haven't had a chance to check it out, you definitely should. The essay takes a look at one aspect of the Brazilian Operation Car Wash scandal, specifically the activity of the Odebrecht Company and a history of dispossession in the Bahia region of Brazil, which stretches all the way back to the 1950s. So we've got a lot to talk about today, um, and we're just going to dive right in. Jonathan, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Great. Thanks for joining us. So uh, before we started recording, we were talking a little bit about your larger research um, on this region of Brazil um, and the history of dispossession and attempts at uh, reclaiming land um, and plantations. So perhaps you could just share a little bit about your research. You've been going there for 15 years. um, And then, you know, kind of tell us this article is like pretty short compared to the rest of the work that you've done. So, you know, how did you, how did you come to writing the article and and what's kind of your perspective on this larger uh, bribery scandal that's kind of rocking the region right now? Right. Well, of course I I came to writing this article uh, in part, you know, given the current news cycle over the past couple of years, Odebrecht has been in the news very much, um, not just in the Brazilian media, of course, but internationally in the United States. And, I figured it, this was the, perhaps the right moment to recount this story that has been told to me by many people in Southern Bahia, where I've uh, been doing my research uh, for yeah for some 15 years now. So, um, so I actually started yeah so I started doing research in Southern Bahia in 2002 while I was actually still an undergraduate and uh, I initially started. Uh, studying land rights movements and squatter occupations that emerged in that region in the 1990s. Um, so what had happened in the 90s was that there was a, a fungal disease that had uh, affected this uh, zone, where uh, the cacao zone of Bahia, and the disease was introduced into the region in the early 90s. And as a result, you know, uh, Brazil's national economy at the same time was, of course, also kind of undergoing this period of protracted crisis. And so a lot of the plantations in the region, um, a lot of them went bankrupt and a lot of people were unemployed all of a sudden. And so a lot of people um, joined together to uh, begin to occupy these abandoned uh, plantation lands. So you had actually a very diverse mix of, of uh, groups in that region. You had these decentralized squad organizations. You had some organizations that were seeking to you know, directly buy plantation land from former plantation owners. And of course, you also had uh, a lot of activity by uh, groups affiliated with the MST, the Landless Workers Movement. So um, so that was kind of my entryway into doing this research. But to situate these social movements that emerged in the 1990s in a broader historical context, you know, I, you know, I would spend time with a lot of... Uh, you know, with, with a lot of former plantation workers, right, who were involved in these occupations. And for them, you know, Odebrecht was a, uh, it was a well-known name among them because they had worked on Odebrecht's plantation. And, you know, a lot of people, of course, 
um, had very ambivalent mixed feelings about Odebrecht because he had, you know, you know, he had uh, taken years of their life, you know, away from them, you know, through this long and you know, hard plantation labor, right? Um, and when they, when people began to occupy these plantations in the 90s, in some respects, many people also saw themselves as reclaiming or recovering land that Odebrecht himself and among many others had uh, taken in the 1950s up through around the 1970s. And so, mm -hmm. so a lot of my uh, research was, you know, you know, I would hear these mentions in, in passing. People say, yeah, you know, Odebrecht stole all this land, you know, from the poseros, from these families who occupied this region historically. And, and of course, you know, it took me some time to come to terms with like what that the full complexity of that of this really long, you know, decades long story, right? And so I spent a lot of my time kind of looking, you know, looking to reconstruct this historical moment. I interviewed a lot of people, you know, former, um, you know, members of families that had been dispossessed, you know, uh, many of many of whom have since, you know, in the past several years, many of whom have since uh, passed on. Um, and, you know, I also spent a lot of time as well, you know, reconstructing the life world of these families, you know, the, uh, their way of life, the way that they made their living and so on in, in this region prior to this land grab that occurred in the 1950s. So, um, so there's this kind of long durée, you know, um, you know, writing on the back of these, of these, uh, oral historical narratives that, that's kind of guided my research over the, over the years. So I mean, today the name Odebrecht has kind of come into the uh, come into a into this Petrobras uh, Brazilian bribery scandal that's kind of stretching across the region, and and that's what we, if we're aware of the name, that's kind of what we're thinking of is this. It's it's a family, but it's also a company that like is a shell company and has all these different holdings. It's very complicated. It's kind of like Coca Cola or like just a, a giant corporation that's really too complex to say something as simple as oh this was a rubber company or oh, this was a cacao cultivating company. But when you talk about the history of dispossession in the specific region and the families and people that you're talking to, you're actually really talking about one guy, Noberto Odebrecht, right? And his arrival in the region in 49. So there are these land reclamation um, uh, movements that are happening in the 90s. But this this region has a really long history of what we could call squatting or or like informal land possession um, that stretches back to before those dispossessions in the fifties. So you know we know Odebrecht in this context of like the scandal and this big company and this family at the center of it. But this region, I mean, has a much longer history with that name, and it, and it right. means something different to them. So I'm like curious to hear how that uh, dispossession happened. And and this is something that you kind of outline in the article, but then right. maybe also how your oral history project has sort of given a, given a, a different perspective to, to what that dispossession really looked like and, and what the implications of that were for people there. Right. Right. So, um, so as I mentioned in the, in the short piece in Nakla, um, Odebrecht, he arrived in the region in late, 1940s around 1949 early mm -hmm. 50s and you know he had originally he had originally arrived in the region to build a port um the the brazilian government was expanding its maritime infrastructure at the time and and that's when Odebrecht had you know come to this region initially 
and he basically realized there was a lot of untapped, you know, so to speak, nat natural potential, natural resources in the region. Um, it's a particularly hilly region. There's not, uh, there's not very, there are no rivers that are, you know, easily navigable, so on and so forth. So historically, it was this kind of region of, of refuge, right? Um, and so, you know, the the process of dispossession occurred, you know, over over a couple different broad phases. The first one was was not um, was not outright dispossession of the people who were squatting and inhabiting the hills. Um, so what Odebrecht did first was he set up a small timber company and he extracted timber from the region's forests. You know, um, they would sometimes recruit help from local people to help identify different hardwood tree species and so on, uh, help with uh, provide labor and so on. Um, you know, and so in some of my, some of the oral histories I did, you know, people would kind of, there was this kind of distinct periodization, you know, it's a, we remember when Odebrecht and, you know, and his uh, collaborators, you know, arrived in the region, they would tell us, you know, you know, we're not here for your land, you know, don't worry, you know, but can you help us find the hardwood timber? And, you know, so that appears to have proceeded for several years until around the 1960s, there was a number of, um, uh, government policies to, as I mentioned in the article, to, to kind of establish Brazil as a self, you know, sufficient producer of natural rubber, um, to meet national demand and also then for export. Um, and at that point, there was, uh, so, so the Brazilian government was investing in natural rubber production, uh, through, through plantation agriculture. And what had happened then was that the region was ideal. It was kind of an ideal, uh, uh, had an ideal climate for, for cultivating rubber. And so what had happened uh, after the 1960s was that there was then this real kind of wholesale dispossession that happened to families who had been squatting up in the hills at that time. Um, and, you know, arguably, I mean, I, I don't have the, the numbers or the books. I, I haven't been able to look at the company's books from the 1950s and 1960s, but you know, arguably, uh, the Odebrecht, you know, Norberto Odebrecht himself and his organization had arguably generated some significant, significant capital, uh, through, uh, you know, through timber extraction and through, uh, uh, acquiring and, re and reselling, speculating on land. Um, and so, you know, arguably, I mean, you know, if we want to understand the background story of the Odebrecht organization itself, you know, it's this particular region of the southern Bahia is a, an important region to understand. Um, yeah, it, it, it's important to understand the history of Odebrecht in this region in order to understand the rise and the sort of takeoff of the larger Odebrecht company. So you were able to talk with one of those collaborators. Um, there's a guy, uh, Jeremias? Jeremias? Yeah, we say Jeremias in Portuguese. Jeremias. Okay, great. Yeah, yeah. I'm learning. I'm learning. Uh, and there's <laughs> and there's a statue of him. You said in the right. is it in the forest or, or kind of like to it, the entrance of the forest? It, it's near the entrance to uh, Odebrecht's plantation in the region. So you know, as I had mentioned, kind of Odebrecht was speculating on all this land, acquiring it, and then reselling it to these different investors in rubber. Um, but Odebrecht did keep a plantation for himself. Right, and region. you say that and, it continues to operate. Yeah, I mean, it, it continues to operate under fairly bad conditions. You know, mm. the, 
the regional economy has really suffered in the in the recent economic crisis that uh, Brazil has been experiencing over the past several years. So, you know, even now there's been a lot of people laid off, um, a lot of people leaving the region to work elsewhere. Um, but yeah, so at the entrance to that plantation, there is in fact it's kind of a, it's a cement cast sort of statue of of this guy who I did in fact interview, and uh, he was kind of Odebrecht's. Uh, you know, his right-hand man, so to speak. Right. So there's, I mean, there's a very specific, um, not like regional, but a very local face to how these histories actually play out. You know, we think about this kind of, this uh, thing that happens in courts, but what you're talking about is, is you know, burning down houses and, and this one specific guy showing up and saying, hey, sign this and we'll pay you for the structures on the land, but you don't really, you can't really be here. Like, you don't own this land anymore. And, and it's not some kind of corporate goon who shows up. It's a, it's a local. Um, and then there's, you know, there's also a face to the other side of this. There's the woman, Beatrice, who you begin with, um, and her family's dispossession. Um, and it's, and it's, I mean, it's curious to see how this thing that like happened in the early fifties and then, and then kind of to a new extreme, uh, about a decade later, uh, it continues to have a very human face now. And, it uh it, it plays into this larger you know really large scale corruption scandal um in a way that's kind of it's almost jarring the difference in the scale right that there are right. these these individual families that have had experiences related to the kind of birth of this company um and now we think about the company in the context of, you know, billions of dollars, millions of dollars in bribes and billions of dollars in profit. So near the end of the article, you make this argument for uh, reparations and, and Odebrecht is paying, it's been ordered to pay reparations and it's made settlements with several governments right. in the region to the tune of millions and billions of dollars in the case of Brazil, which is, these are just mind boggling numbers. Um, yeah. But you are making the argument for reparations to the poseros, to the to the people who were dispossessed, um, and then also forced, more or less forced to work as wage laborers on these plantations. Um, so, I mean, how does, I guess I'm curious how the, the way that you're covering this story is so different from what we might generally expect from like a journalistic sort of coverage of, of a corruption scandal where it's a very follow the money, which is a valuable thing to do. Um, but it kind of tells the story more of like palace intrigue or, you know, politicians and, and CEOs and executives in their emails. And, uh, this is really a more, um, it's a longer history and it's a less, uh, paper-based history, I guess is what I'm saying. It really relies on these interviews with specific people who have had these experiences of dispossession. So I wonder how you think that plays into this notion of reparations. How does doing a project like this and conducting it in the way that you did kind of contribute to making a larger argument for um, reparations for these people and not just for governments or, or um, you know, other entities? I hope that right. that's a kind of long-winded question, but sure. I'm very curious as to like how your work plays into this larger discussion of, of what the fallout should really yeah. be. Sure, sure. Well, I mean, feel free to jump in if I don't answer what you're interested <laughs> in, because um, there's, a, there's a lot I could respond to there. Um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, one of the first things I could say is that, you know, this isn't my argument for reparations. You know, these are, uh, you know, these are sentiments and arguments that, people who I've known for many years in Southern Bahia 
themselves, you know, kind of feel, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, Be- Beatrice, for example, you know, she's skeptical that it would ever work, right? Because at the very end, she's like, you know, they can redistribute the land, Odebrecht plantation, and a few years from now, probably someone else will come and steal it from us again. Mm-hmm. So there is this kind of deep pessimism, right? Um, at the same time, though, um, you know, as I mentioned before, you know, already in the 1990s, there was, in certain respects, you know, there was this uh, restoration, this moment of restorative justice, so to speak, in which there was this, you know, fairly, from a reach, from a municipal and regional perspective, there was this kind of, you know, there was a fairly large scale um, recovery of land that had been stolen, right? So there was, there is a sort of model for reparations in this particular region, right? Um, Odebrecht plantation was in the nineties one of one of one of one of many plantations that was able to weather itself through those times and, um, and survive through the nineties. Um, it was at one point in the nineteen nineties. In fact, um, it was in fact occupied. There was a sort of worker revolt that occurred, but the de- the, de- the details of which I've you know still trying to reconstruct through some other work. Um, but I, so I, I think the kind of the symbolic you know significance of occupying and the sort of prospect of taking back uh, land, not only from these other plantations who had bought their land through Odebrecht as an intermediary, but the the prospect of recovering land from Odebrecht. Uh, himself and you know as a company, yeah, I think it, it carries a lot of significant symbolic weight for people in this particular region. This history of dispossession, it really there's there's a lot that feels exceptional about this case, and of course it's it's a unique case, it's a unique scandal. Um, right. And 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 then there's this kind of uh, you know justifiable pessimism amongst people in the region. You know, your friend um, Damiao says. He he's not convinced that Noberto Odebrecht, who who supposedly died in 2014, right. is really dead. Um, right. Which sounds kind of kooky if if you're coming from a <laughs> from a distance. But then he says there was no wake, and right. it's you know it, he he died like a couple like a few months before uh, two of his relatives were indicted and and one sentenced to some decades in prison. Um, and and so it's kind of the the like sort of um, melodrama of the whole thing actually starts to take on a more realistic hue. That personal history and the, and the experiences of these people for whom Odebrecht is this name that has a, has a very concrete layered meaning um, yeah. because of decades and decades of, of abuse at the hands of this company, essentially it, it does actually, I think it, gives a kind of realist tone to the larger story. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I mean, I yeah. think that's a, that's a fantastic contribution to the, just to the coverage of the story. So I'm terrified to talk about updates <laughs> because God only knows what will happen. Um, yeah. So people should know, you know, we're recording this on Friday, December 15th, but you know, the, the Peru's president, um, PPK Kuczynski is, is now under pressure to resign. He says he's not going to, um, as is, I think, the VP in Ecuador. Um, yeah. And this is all because of links to specifically the Odebrecht company. So as we look at how the story plays out, um, I'm, of course, curious to see how international news outlets are covering things and, and you know, which presidents get 
ousted from office. Um, but I'm also wondering in terms of your interlocutors on the ground in Bahia and, and your um, communication with them, you know, what, what kind of things are you going to be looking out for there um, just as things develop and, and to kind of not predict, but keep an eye on, on the trajectory of things as this develops? Yeah. Um, well, from a regional standpoint, I mean, uh, from what I hear from friends in Bahia is that Odebrecht's presence in the past months and past couple of years has really been uh, retracting. Um, you know, mm. you know, uh, you know. Recently, they had a tilapia fish farm. You know, and that's closed now. You know, um, a lot of other like little organizations and entities kind of scattered about the region there are closed. Um, and I mean, to be honest, the thing that I really you know, wonder if it will actually happen is if Odebrecht's plantation is eventually occupied. You know, from what I hear, I haven't I haven't been there in, in some time, but I communicate via WhatsApp with a lot of my uh-huh. friends now. Um, you know, and I hear from them, you know, like a lot of the plantation has grown up in weeds, um, you know, that a lot of people, as I mentioned before, have been laid off from work and so on. Um, so that wouldn't just be like a symbolic thing. I mean, that would actually no, be no. a really materially a really big deal to have access to that land and to be able to cultivate yeah. it. Yeah, huh. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, it, it's a large property. Uh, it's um, I forget the exact numbers, but it's it's several thousand hectares, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I mean, there are a lot of underemployed, landless uh, laborers in the region who could very much benefit from you know, having access to that land. Um, and I think, you know, uh, yeah, so I, you, you mentioned uh, my friend uh, Damian, you know, who you know, kind of indicate, you know, indicated to me in some conversation that there was still this kind of lack of closure in the story. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, he was skeptical that Odebrecht had actually died, right? And And I think... I mean, you know, I do, you know, I think the Odebrecht company just wants to continue, and I think it wants to keep, you know, you know, uh, keep in business, you know, and it's doing things now to try to, you know, make things good, so to speak, with the public. And um, what I think would be super fascinating is if the Odebrecht organization, as an act of good faith, you know, took the initiative in saying, you know what, you know, we're, you know. We're going to return to the root of the problem. To the we're going to look at return to the the root of the behavior that informed you know the kinds of activities this that got us in trouble with the Operation Car Wash. You know, um, mm-hmm. you know, treating other people, other human beings, as instruments for accumulation of wealth. Yeah. You know, and, and what I think would be fascinating is if the the Odebrecht organization is like, you know what, we're going to make this good, and we're going to go back to the roots of the problem. And we're not going to wait until, you know, landless people in need, you know, risk their lives and risk, you know, risk uh, violence against them through a land occupation. But we're going to do the right thing and we're going to, we're going to, you know, find a, you know, a large number of local families and we're going to divide up the plantation and we're going to transfer a title to them. But that would be, I mean, that's something that I think would uh, it may be very you know that's that's perhaps a, 
a pipe dream, wishful thinking. Yeah, we've got some optimism to balance out (laughs) this. uh... (laughs) Sure, sure, sure. But it sounds like a great PR move, too. I don't know. It it could work for them. (laughs) Well, I mean, and I honestly think that, right? Because, you know, as I I mentioned, like, the company really is, has, uh, it really is interested in fixing this problem. Because now it's not just the Odebrecht family that has, you know, vested interest in the in, in the future longevity of the company itself. There's, you know, thousands and thousands of other people working there, right? Mm-hmm. And they don't want the company to go under. So, the you know, the acting CEO, you know, in the future, you know, um, you know, has arguably a sort of, uh, yeah, they like you said, you know, they have a, there's a, a good PR case to be made here <laughs> yeah. for doing precisely what, you know, many people kind of talk about, you know, you know, informally and casually in Southern Bahia, you know. So, um, yeah, so I, I think that would be a, a fascinating uh, turn of events. Yeah, and it, I mean, you make an interesting point, too, which is like the the thing that connects this history of local dispossession and uh, large-scale governmental corruption, it's not just the company. It's it's a certain kind of attitude toward uh, structures and, and systems and, and the, the letter of the law as opposed to the spirit and the use of kind of legal loopholes and pathways to abuse people for profit Um there's a, yeah, there's a kind of a ethos in common there. And so it's kind of like, you know, you talk about attempting to rebrand, which is like maybe the more PR. Um, but I'm, I, I'm almost thinking of like an exorcism here. Like this is kind of like a, a purging um, in a way of, of, and, and the larger like investigation is looking for people to hold responsible. But there's also this kind of process that is at the root of, of what's going on now. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, and I think, uh, you know, from their financial standpoint, you know, from a purely economic, you know, standpoint, they, uh, they, they certainly have a, an interest in, uh, in, in doing the sort of corporate exorcism, so to speak. <laughs> you, you know, uh, yeah. they got to get rid of the ghost, right? Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, Jonathan, thank you so much uh, for joining us today. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. That was Jonathan DeVore, author of the latest Nakla Report's feature essay, Odebrecht's Original Sins. Jonathan's essay is available to read for free right now at nakla.org, where you can also subscribe to the report and donate to Nakla and find much more original content by our web contributors. While you're online, you should make sure to follow Nakla on Twitter at Nakla and at facebook.com slash Nakla, that's N-A-C-L-A. And if you're using Apple Podcasts, please do rate, review, and subscribe to Nakla Radio. It helps us reach more listeners. Nakla Radio is produced by me, our managing editor is Laura Weiss, and our music is by Radio Harocho. Bonito.